A warning. This episode features discussions of kidnapping, murder, and assault. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. One unfortunate reality of researching disappearances is the number of unsubstantiated rumors I come across. It seems that the longer a case remains unsolved, the more conspiracy theories attach themselves to the missing person's legacy. These theories tend to distract from the main investigation. Because as they gain traction, authorities are forced to spend more time and resources looking into them. But the slightest tug at a loose end, and most of them unravel. In the end, they're usually just hurtful and insulting to the memories of the missing. So when I come across a case like this one, which has an endless number of conspiracy theories, it can be difficult to separate truth from fiction. Because no matter how much you look into it, the entity at the center is among the most secretive organizations in the world. The Vatican. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing persons case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a 15-year-old girl whose disappearance became entangled with the sociopolitics of the time. To this day, her memory is overshadowed by wild conspiracies. Instead, I'd like us to remember her. Her name is Emanuela Orlandi. There's a lot to get through in this story, so I'm just gonna dive in. It's the 1980s. For the last decade and a half or so, Italy has been overwhelmed with political terrorism, kidnappings, murder, and rampant bombings. They call this period the Years of Lead. At one point, an Italian extremist group abducts and murders the former prime minister, Aldo Moro. His kidnapping solidifies what many Italians fear at the time. No one is safe. Sadly, Moro's execution doesn't inspire government action. Life in Italy only becomes more chaotic. As these events play out on TV screens and across neighborhoods, people start to wonder, if this is what's happening in plain sight, what's happening behind closed doors? This is the Italy that Emanuela Orlandi grows up in, violent and unrelenting. Except for one small enclave inside Rome, almost untouched by turmoil. Vatican City is a separate country within the borders of Italy, ruled by the Pope. You can only become a citizen if you work there, or if you're related to someone who does. The Orlandi family lives there because Emanuela's father, Ercole, works as a clerk, handling the Pope's meeting calendar. His wife and five children enjoy a peaceful, almost idyllic life, an arm's length away from the years of lead. That is until 1981, when the unrest in Italy finally creeps over the Vatican's walls. 
Around that time, the Vatican supposedly receives a warning about a potential kidnapping on the grounds. It has the church on edge for months. But while they're waiting for this ticking time bomb to blow, something else begins making its way across St. Peter's Square. Pop music. Artists like Michael Jackson and Italian icon Claudio Baglioni flood the airwaves. And at 15 years old, Emanuela Orlandi wants to be just like them. She wants to learn every instrument she can so she can make whatever music she wants. But in the summer of 83, she's taking singing and flute lessons. The lessons are in Rome, but at home, she rehearses so much that her brothers tease her. Emanuela always snaps back. You'll see. One day, I'm going to be famous. Which brings us to June 22, 1983. That morning, Emanuela begs her mother Maria to make a special dinner for later. Pizza. It may sound like a stereotype, but it's Emanuela's absolute favorite meal. Her siblings too. Maria eventually agrees but only if Emanuela shops for the ingredients. The teenager is happy to oblige and spends the afternoon at the grocery store. After she brings the supplies home, she practices the flute. Emanuela gets so into her music that she loses track of time, and before she knows it, she's late for class. Her lessons are held in a school near Piazza Navona, a public square only a couple miles from her home. It attracts droves of tourists who want to see its three beautiful sculpted fountains. Because she's running late, Emanuela asks her older brother Pietro to take her to class. Usually, the 24-year-old would happily give her a ride. He loves flaunting his new motorbike, but today his answer is a firm no. He's got a date with his girlfriend and doesn't want to risk being late to do his little sister a favor. After a run-of-the-mill sibling tiff, Emanuela leaves for the bus stop in a huff. She arrives at her flute lesson half an hour late. Afterward, she goes to her singing lesson, but she ends up cutting it short, presumably so she has time to pick up her 12-year-old sister, Christina, about a quarter mile away. I don't know what Christina did while Emanuela was in class, but the nearby courthouse was their meeting point. Emanuela walks across the piazza, where a classmate sees her near the bus stop. When the bus arrives, the classmate hops on, and Emanuela continues on to pick up Christina. At least, that's her intention. But she apparently gets sidetracked. A few minutes later, around 7 p.m., Emanuela calls her older sister, Frederica. She says that a man approached her with this great opportunity. He wants to hire her to advertise Avon products in a fashion show for one of Italy's biggest brands. He's even going to pay her $220. Frederica knows right away that it's a scam. She tells Emanuela not to accept any cash until she speaks with their parents during dinner. And that's basically the end of their conversation. Dinner in the Orlandi household is served promptly at 8 p.m., but that night when the family gathers, Christina and Emanuela are running late. Around 8.10 p.m., their mother Maria starts to worry. She knows something's wrong. No one ever misses pizza night. Her husband, Ercole, tries to quell her fears. He points out that it's summer, 
the sun's still out, and their daughters probably lost track of time. But with every passing minute, Ercole becomes less and less sure. Finally, at 8.30, the doorbell rings. Maria and Ercole sigh with relief as they open the front door. But their worry returns when they see Christina standing on the front step by herself. She says she waited for Emanuela outside the courthouse for over an hour. Then she walked to the music school, but Emanuela wasn't there. She doesn't know where her sister is. The Orlandis spring into action. Emanuela's parents rush over to the music school just to double check while their eldest daughters call local hospitals. Pietro rides his motorbike up and down the streets, desperately looking for his sister. But there's no sign of Emanuela anywhere. Later that night, Ercole and Pietro go to the local police station in Rome to report her missing. They emphasize to the on-duty officer that Emanuela is a minor and a citizen of the Vatican. They explain she was last seen in the busy Piazza Navona, but the officer doesn't seem to care. Emanuela's a teenage girl. He thinks she's probably hanging out late with her friends. He says something along the lines of, do you know how many little girls go missing in the summer? Get some sleep and everything will be resolved tomorrow. But the situation doesn't get better the next day. So the Orlandi family turns to the highest power they know, the Holy See. It's June 23rd, 1983. It's been at least 12 hours since anyone last saw Emanuela Orlandi. She still hasn't come home, and her father, Ercole, reports her missing to the Vatican police. Eventually, the news makes it to Vatican officials, including high-ranking clergy and Pope John Paul II. For a while, the Vatican feared a possible kidnapping, and now they worry this could be it. The governing body of the Catholic Church, the Holy See, call an urgent meeting to the Papal Palace to discuss the situation. But for reasons that are still unclear, they don't do anything afterward. They don't provide any help to the Orlandi family. It's a frustrating decision that leaves the Orlandis with only one other option, to search for Emanuela with the Italian police. And they aren't very helpful either. Pietro tracks down two officers who recall seeing Emanuela near the Piazza Navona. They say they saw her talk with a 35-year-old man in a green BMW with a bag full of Avon products. The police and family follow these leads, but they arrive at dead ends. Meanwhile, several relatives arrive to help search for Emanuela. Her uncle Mario sends a brief statement to an Italian newspaper called Il Tempo titled, Who Has Seen Emanuela? The article gives Emanuela's physical description, including that she was carrying a flute at the time of her disappearance. The statement also says that she was last seen near Piazza Navona, and includes a phone number to call. The following day on June 24th, two other newspapers pick up the story. And back in Vatican City, the Orlandis wait by the phone, wondering if anyone will call. The next day, the Orlandi family gets a call from a 16-year-old boy named Pierre Luigi. He says that he recently visited Campo di Fiori, 
a square with a daily, vibrant, open-air market within walking distance of Piazza Navona. As Pierre Luigi and his girlfriend walked around the busy square, they came across a girl selling necklaces and Avon products. He says she introduced herself as Barbarella. He noticed the girl had a flute with her, and he asked if she would play for them. She refused to play the instrument in public, and according to Pierre Luigi, the girl matched Emanuela's description exactly. It's exactly the type of call the Orlandis had been hoping for. They rush to Campo di Fiori and search every inch of the market, but they don't find any sign of Barbarella or Emanuela. Disappointed and distraught, they return home empty-handed. Three days later, on June 28th, they get a phone call from a man named Mario who says he's Pierre Luigi's friend. Mario owns a bar near Piazza Navona and recalls seeing a girl who looked like Emanuela selling Avon products nearby. Like Pierre Luigi, the man claims he spoke to her and she introduced herself as Barbarella. As they chatted, she told Mario that she wanted a break from her family, but would return home by September 1983 to play the flute in her older sister's wedding. The Orlandis are stunned. Their oldest daughter, Natalina, is getting married in September, but that information hasn't yet been published anywhere. In fact, only a few friends outside of the family know, which means the bar owner had to have spoken with Amanuela directly. She must still be in Rome. They just need to find her. Within a week, Pietro and his friends plaster 3,000 missing person posters around the city. When all is said and done, her face is everywhere, and Emanuela's disappearance adds to the unrest in Italy. Inside the Vatican, families take safety precautions with their children, fearing they could meet the same fate. And just when it seems the investigation is stalling out, the Vatican's most prominent figure gets involved the Holy Father. Like any government, the Vatican can be an enigma, and it was hard for me to find information about its motivations in this case. So I don't know why the Pope involves himself. Maybe he took notice of the public's panic and wanted to quell their fears, or he just felt called to help. In any case, on July 3rd, during his usual Sunday address, Pope John Paul II appeals to Emanuela's kidnappers to release her. He emphasizes that he knows the Orlandi family well and just wants to see Emanuela return home. The announcement is huge. It's the Vatican's first acknowledgement that Emanuela was kidnapped. How or why they drew this conclusion, beyond the alleged warning that a kidnapping would take place in the Vatican, I'm not sure. But the Pope uses his platform to spread awareness and pushes officials to find the missing girl. Unfortunately, the increased exposure floods the police department with false leads. But the strangest tip they receive also ends up being the most compelling. Two days after the Pope's address, the Vatican press room receives a call from a man with a foreign accent. Staffers think he might be American. In broken Italian, the man says he's speaking on behalf of a Turkish organization that staffers believe to be the neo-fascist Grey Wolves. He claims that two witnesses who have already come forward with information about Emanuela's disappearance, Mario and Pier Luigi, are also members. 
the fact that the caller knows these names is important. At this point, Mario and Pierluigi's participation in this case has not been released to the public. So this statement earns the caller some credibility in the press room, which is why the room becomes concerned when the man says Emanuela is now their captive. He says the group will release her, but only in exchange for the freedom of a Roman prisoner. 25-year-old Turkish assassin and Grey Wolves member Mehmet Ali Adja. Now, during the years of lead, quid pro quo kidnappings are relatively common. Terrorist groups would often take a hostage, then demand a swap for one of their own. The problem in this case is that Mehmet Ali Aja is in prison for trying to assassinate Pope John Paul II. So you see why the Vatican might be reluctant to let him go. Possibly because of this, papal officials don't seem to take the call seriously. So the caller tries someone else. Just over an hour later, the phone rings at the Orlandi household. Amanuela's uncle Mario picks up. It's the same man, the one who sounds American. The family crowds around the receiver as he tells him that he has Emanuela. Then he plays a recording of a young girl talking about entering her third year of high school. Natalina's fiance presses his ear against the phone as the recording repeats on a loop seven times in total. He's convinced the voice definitely belongs to Emanuela. And for the first time since her daughter went missing 12 days ago, Maria smiles. It's the proof she's been waiting for that her daughter's alive. After over a week of bad leads and false hopes, the Orlandi family finally believes they've made contact with Emanuela's kidnapper. Pietro later tells the Toronto Star, when they asked to exchange Emanuela for Mehmet, to us, it meant she was alive. So we welcomed the call with great joy, despite the absurdity of it. During the rest of the call, the Orlandi family asks the stranger for more details, but the man offers little else. Instead, he assures them that the Vatican will get in touch with them soon and resolve this once and for all. The next day, Emanuela's father, Ercole, approaches Dino Manduzzi, the Pope's household leader. Ercole asks Dino if the Vatican heard anything from the kidnapper. Dino says he personally didn't, but he'll ask around. Later that day, Dino goes to the office of the Vatican's substitute secretary of state, Martinez Somolo. But Martinez says he never received such a call. Dino's been working in the Vatican for many years. He knows when something unusual is happening. And right now, he's getting that sense. He presses Martinez. Is he sure the Vatican didn't get a call from Emanuela's kidnappers? After some prodding, Martinez finally admits that a weird phone call did come in the other day, but he adds the information given was vague and they were unsure what to do with it. The next day, the same unidentified caller tells an Italian news organization that he can prove that the Grey Wolves have Emanuela. They hid evidence in one of the trash cans near the Italian parliament building. An editor of the Newswire rushes to Parliament Square, a bustling piazza located about half a mile from Piazza Navona. When he arrives, he digs through garbage bins. Eventually, he finds a yellow envelope that contains a copy of Emanuela's music school ID and a handwritten note. It reads, 
with so much love, your Amanuela. The editor shows the note to the Orlandis, who confirm that it is their daughter's handwriting. It's all but confirmation that the Grey Wolves are truly behind Amanuela's abduction. But while authorities pour their resources into tracking down the unknown caller, another new suspect makes himself known. In early July, one of Emanuela's music schoolmates, Laura Casagrande, receives a strange phone call from a different man. This one has a Middle Eastern sounding accent and claims that Emanuela is no longer in Italy. He issues a deadline. The Vatican has until July 20th to comply with the demand to release Mehmet Ali Aja. The man also wants the Vatican Secretary of State to arrange a direct phone line to his office for the kidnappers to utilize. Up to this point, the Vatican had been pretty evasive when it came to Amanuela's disappearance. Sometimes it got involved. Other times, the Holy See seemed to want nothing to do with her disappearance. But Amanuela Orlandi's case is getting harder for Vatican officials to dismiss. Emanuela's name is popping up in headlines all over the world. Even CBS News in the US covers her story. And now the kidnappers are making demands of them directly. So in a surprising turn, Vatican officials decide to set up the phone line with the kidnappers. The Secretary of State chats with representatives from the Grey Wolves at least 15 times. But for whatever reason, he refuses to share any information from these calls with the investigation at large. Meanwhile, the July 20th deadline comes and goes. Nothing happens. But about two weeks later, another Turkish political organization makes a call. They claim they're Emanuela's captors. And if the Vatican doesn't release Mehmet by October 30th, she will be executed. They offer the Orlandi family proof that they still have Emanuela. They pass along notes from her and relay personal details, like how she doesn't like milk or when she goes to church. But the Italian police are skeptical of all of this. They think the group are using facts about Emanuela gleaned from newspaper articles to con the Orlandi family. To Italian authorities, these guys are just opportunists out to use Emanuela's case to free Mehmet. Even still, it's the only lead they follow for months and the conversations go nowhere. They aren't able to track down the alleged kidnappers either. Then in the days leading up to the October 30th deadline, a gut-wrenching rumor emerges. Emanuela is already dead. On October 17, 1983, that same Turkish political organization sends a letter to the Italian newswire. In it, the group declares that a man named Elise killed Emanuela, and he was about to flee the country. The news hits like a slap in the face, but the Orlandi family refuses to give up hope. They've come this far, talking with her kidnappers for months on end. They're willing to wait for news from the Grey Wolves, on October 27th, the man with the American accent places his last call to the Orlandi family. He says, prepare the parents for this. There is no longer a possibility of returning Emanuela. Now a new phase begins.
By the end of 1983, Amanuela Orlandi's disappearance remains unsolved. The main suspect, a neo-fascist Turkish group called the Grey Wolves, has stopped communicating with the Orlandi family and the Vatican. Based on their last phone call, it seems Amanuela is dead. Then, in February 1985, Italy's state TV network, RAI, interviews 27-year-old Mehmet Ali Aja, the man both groups tried to ransom for Emanuela. He tells a journalist, of course she was kidnapped for my freedom. She is alive. She is not in danger. And I would like Emanuela Orlandi to be freed without conditions. He seems confident in his assertions, but it soon becomes clear that it's all guesswork. He admits that he's not entirely sure Emanuela's alive. He's just making, quote, some logical deductions. The lead burns out pretty quick, and many suspect Mehmet's just using Emanuela's case for publicity. And there's probably some truth to that. In later letters he purportedly penned, he goes on to claim that Emanuela was whisked away to a royal palace in Liechtenstein. In 2010, he changes his story again. He tells the press that she's living as a nun in a Catholic monastery and that her relatives visit from time to time. But in this case, anytime one conspiracy gets debunked, another is quick to take its place. In 2005, an anonymous caller phones in to an Italian TV show called Who Has Seen This Person? It's about cold cases, disappearances, and unsolved mysteries. The caller says the real key to solving Emanuela's disappearance lies inside mobster Enrico Di Petti's crypt. In the 1970s and 80s, Enrico Di Petti's was one of the leaders of the Banda della Maliana, a large crime gang in Rome. They were involved in typical mafia transgressions, like money laundering and drugs. But they also had their hands in several key political and financial events during the years of lead including neo-fascist bombings, the kidnapping of former Prime Minister Aldo Moro, and the Roberto Calvi scandal. During the years of lead, both the Vatican and Enrico's gang invested millions into Calvi's bank, which collapsed in June of 1982. Neither party recovered that money, or so the public thought at the time. In 2008, Enrico Di Petti's former lover, Sabrina Minardi, explains what the anonymous caller meant when he said the secret to Emanuela's disappearance was inside Enrico's crypt. According to Sabrina, Enrico kidnapped Emanuela for the Vatican, so the Vatican bank could help Enrico's gang launder money overseas. That way, they likely could recoup the cash lost in the Calvi scandal. Sabrina tells officials that three of Enrico's men followed Emanuela in the days before she was kidnapped. After she was taken, Enrico held her in a grotto below a nearby apartment building. After investigators hear this news, Rome prosecutor Giancarlo Capaldo questions Emanuela's former classmates about any men who may have been following her. He shows them over 100 photos. And surprisingly, most of them recognize three men in specific, the gang members Sabrina named. Giancarlo also learns that Enrico's gang did use an apartment in the building Sabrina named. They even find the grotto underneath. 
But while Giancarlo suspects hostages were kept down there at some point, there's no proof Emanuela was ever among them. Plus, none of this explains why the Vatican Bank would want Emanuela in the first place. It's a good story, but it's built on a strange premise. Three years later, one of Enrico's former associates gives a more plausible explanation. In an interview with the Italian newspaper La Stampa, former gangster Antonio Mancini says that in the 1980s, Banda lent the Vatican a large sum of money through Roberto Calvi's bank. After Calvi's bank failed, the Vatican never repaid them. So according to Mancini, Enrico kidnapped Emanuela to compel the Vatican to return the money. But the Vatican didn't give them all the money back. As for what happened to Emanuela, Mancini doesn't provide specifics, but hints that it's unlikely she's alive. He does say that later, Enrico struck a deal with Vatican officials that made all the debt go away. And this is where the conspiracy theory about Enrico's crypt comes into play. Upon his death, Enrico wanted to be buried at the Sant'Alplanari Basilica, an important Roman Catholic church. It's where many Vatican officials and clergy are entombed. And coincidentally enough, it's also next door to Emanuela's music school. After he was murdered in 1990, Enrico got his wish. He was buried in the church's crypt in an expensive tomb that had his name encrusted with diamonds. When this news came to light in early 2000s, Catholics were furious. They wanted to know how the Catholic Church allowed a criminal like Enrico to be buried in such a sacred place. The Vatican claimed it was because Enrico donated large sums of money and helped the poor. But the public and the press drew their own conclusions. Rumors sprang up that Emanuela could possibly be buried with Enrico. Others think his burial site is proof he kidnapped Emanuela. Emanuela's older brother Pietro has since demanded to know everything about why Enrico was buried at the Basilica and whether his sister had anything to do with it. On January 21st, 2012, almost 30 years after Emanuela was taken, Pietro leads a demonstration outside the Basilica in Rome. He speaks passionately while holding a black and white photo of his sister. He tells the crowd Enrico's burial is the junction of a conspiratorial bond between state, church, and crime that took Emanuela away 28 years ago. Pietro and the Italian public apply so much pressure that the Vatican eventually grants police permission to exhume Enrico's body. On May 13, 2012, nearly three decades after Emanuela disappeared, Giancarlo Capaldo's investigative team opens Enrico's tomb. While they find only one skeleton in his tomb, they discover the remains of dozens of other people nearby. The team spends the next year performing DNA tests on the bones. When the results come back, none of them are Emanuela, but one set definitely belongs to Enrico. It's been nearly four decades, and Emanuela's remains have yet to be found. This has given the Orlandi family some hope that she may be alive. It's also given curious minds plenty of room to run wild. Since 2012, dozens of theories have cropped up. More tombs across the city have been exhumed. 
The Catholic Church's most prominent exorcist alleged that Amanuela was kidnapped for Vatican sex parties. At one point, Roman paparazzo even tried to defame the Orlandis by saying Emanuela had secretly been living with her older brother Pietro all along. Of course, Pietro Orlandi dismissed that theory outright. Pietro's now in his 60s and acts as the case's de facto spokesperson, as well as an advocate for other missing people. He hosts a popular Italian miniseries about similar cases called The Missing and regularly talks to the press about Emanuela. In 2019, Pietro told The Guardian that he still feels guilty about not giving her a ride to music class that afternoon. Of course, none of this is his fault, and I hope and believe he knows that. To this day, Pietro holds the Vatican accountable for his sister's disappearance. Every year on June 22nd, the anniversary of her abduction, he conducts sit-ins around Rome, demanding answers from the pontiff. In 2021, on the 38th anniversary of Emanuela's disappearance, Pietro gathered a crowd on a Rome street corner located near the Vatican. He held a microphone and stood in front of a banner with an illustration of Emanuela doing what she loved most playing the flute. Pietro tells everyone that his many, many requests to meet with the current Pope have been denied. He's convinced that the Vatican doesn't want to see the truth. He tells the Guardian, quote, the behavior of the Vatican over the years has been one of secrecy and a lack of collaboration. And it has made me think that there are leaders within the Vatican who know what happened, but due to this being so damaging to the image of the church, They've been doing all they can to ensure that the truth doesn't come out. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Mallory Cara, edited by Amber Hurley and Aaron Lan, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.